Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. All right, good morning, guys. Thank you for joining us. As Cash said, uh, we are starting brand new series this week. Uh, if you've been around Dwell for very long, you know we do this every single year. Uh, it is just a good sort of shot in the arm kind of reminder of uh, who God's calling us to be as a church and, and also sort of like cast a little bit of vision for like the future of what uh, Dwell is and can be. And today uh, we begin that journey by talking about family. We are a family, as the song says. Why don't they make songs like that anymore? That was too cheesy, wasn't it? You guys did not react well. It's sad that they, I, I thought people would break out into song. Uh, it's sad. Songs are not like that. Like, you never see Post Malone coming out with, like, just a feel-good song about, like, I have some good friends, and we like to have a good time, and we're bonded as close as family. Like, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon in our lifetime, and that's okay. Uh, today we are celebrating, though, uh, we are family with chili and competition, because I think that's important to any good family. Uh, if your family is not competing with each other, they probably don't actually know or care about or love each other. There, I said it. Uh, there's probably a lack of something in your family, and you should be feeling that. Um, like I said, today we are talking about family because we are a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. That should give you a little bit of a clue what's going to happen the next two weeks. We're going to break this down into three different sessions and just sort of like dive into the idea of what dwell really, really is. Uh, that's also why we're going through Psalm 107, at least this section, which I'm going to swing back to a little bit later. I have at least like an hour's worth of scripture to get through before I get there, uh, but we will swing back through that. And I don't know how many of you guys have heard that. I realize it's one of those things that like I say to outsiders more than I even say to insiders. But five years ago, this verse actually, Psalm 4 through, or 107, 4 through 9, really explains why dwell. If you ever get asked the question, like, why is your church named dwell? Uh, it's not because I wanted people from the South to confuse it with the well, but that does happen. The uh, well is how they pronounce it, all right? That is not the reason. It's not also because there is now an apartment complex, a magazine, and a realty company all called Dwell, and we thought we could just trade off of their impact. It's actually from a verse, or from this set of verses right here, uh, and it really goes to the heart of what it means to be family. But this idea of family doesn't just come from that verse. It actually is the heart of the church and the entire movement of God. And so what we are going to do now is go through way too much scripture, truly an absurd amount of scripture, uh, and walk through the entire Bible and see the way that the, that the idea of family is integrated throughout the entire thing. So hold on for dear life. Uh, it's going to be a lot, and I know it, but you guys can handle it. Here we go. Family begins with Adam and Eve. In some ways, uh, that's where this whole family thing started because God made Adam and said that it was not good that he was alone, so he made him a family. He made him someone else. Uh, what's really interesting about this whole thing is that the writer of Genesis actually goes out of his way to let us know there that God was existing in Trinity, in community, in family himself as he was creating uh, the first people. And then the author goes out of the way to say, like, hey, it wasn't good that they were alone. Uh, it was Adam was like, you know, fine, but it wasn't complete. We are not made to be alone people. We are actually made to be people who are together. 
Then skip ahead 12 verses in uh, Genesis, and the true family of Israel really begins with a guy named Abram who would one day be called Abraham. We see this verse in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, this is where it all starts, right? God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to, you know, like, send you out, and you're going to pick up a bunch of random people, and then you're going to start this organization or whatever like that. No, he says, Abraham, of you and of your offspring, I will make a great nation. I will turn you, your family, into something that is actually going to bless all the other families of the earth. And God tells him in at least two other places uh, that one day his family will number like the uh, sands on the seashore. Or his family will number like the stars in the sky. Saying, Abraham, your family is my plan for how I am going to reach all the families of the earth. And then that family would grow and expand. And really that's what the remainder of the Old Testament is about. They would go into slavery. They would be rescued from slavery. They would wander in the wilderness. Uh, they would be rescued from that wandering. They'd get into the promised land. Uh, they'd have all these prophets and captivities and all kind of crazy stuff. All is happening to this one family, all of whom can trace their lineage directly back to this one guy, Abraham, that God said that he would bless. But what does that have to do with us? Living now thousands of years after Abraham, uh, what does that mean for us? Well, luckily, uh, we're not confused. We're not left alone in that. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, Paul says this, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, that means people who are not Israelites, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at, a, at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you recognize the sort of invitation there into this family of Israel, which means that those promises uh, that were given to Abraham now are extended to you. We were once separated from Israel, but through Christ, we are now connected and brought into this big old family defined by these covenants and this promise given and fulfilled by God. He goes on to say this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now he is saying that you get to not be alone, but actually you are welcomed into the household of God. Or, Paul puts it more simply in Romans 9, he says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, meaning like by blood, people who are connected to Israel, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are adopted into this family of God, counted as his offspring, right? Not counted as him, his employees, not counted as like, you know, members of his organization, counted as offspring of God. 
That's not the only family language that is used to refer to the church. In fact, if you look through the book of Acts and even through most of the New Testament and truly the birth of the church, you'll see that most of the language uh, of how they might refer to each other is actually family language, familial language, if you will. Acts, as the creation of the church, the sort of story, uh, actually starts off this way. So Jesus dies, he comes back from the grave, he sends the Holy Spirit, it fills the church, and then this happens in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many signs, or many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, like a family. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was the very birth of the church, right? Jesus has just gone and said, hey, you're in charge now. I'm leaving you guys to continue my mission here on the earth. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And what did they do first? They put all their stuff together, started sharing and caring for one another. They started meeting together. They started sharing meals together. Then they begin to refer to each other this way. Acts 11, 1 says, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea actually heard, or heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. In Acts, that term brothers is used 52 times. And in fact, in Acts, it tells us like it was at this place where the church was first called Christians. That label of being a Christian actually comes from the outside. It comes from someone else. Someone who was not a part of the family of God actually labeled people as Christians. The way that they referred to each other was as brother and sister. Paul says this in Galatians 4.28, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you might be united in the same mind and judgment. He also says in Galatians 4.28, now you brothers. Brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. James says it this way, brother of Jesus. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. John even writes that this family of God will be known first by its love. First that God loved it, and then that we should love each other as a family. He says this in uh, 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I could go on and on and on to talk about how we are commonly referred to as children of God or as the bride of Christ, but I hope that you're getting the picture here that nowhere in here does it say that the church should be like a 501c3 organization, right? Nowhere here is like the way that you be a church is you got to file this document with the state of Colorado and then you get some like meager tax benefits and stuff like that like that's not part of it nor is it like some sort of like strategic you know like organization like conquer the world kind of thing first and foremost the language especially that the church uses to identify each other is family language And all of this, all of this biblical background kind of stuff, do you know where like, it all is heading to? It's heading to you. To you right here. In this tiny, weird-shaped little church in the bottom of an apartment complex in Denver, Colorado, thousands of years after this, 
It leads to you because someone was a part of this family who told someone else the good news of Jesus, who became a part of this family, who told someone else the good news of Jesus, who became part of this family. That happened thousands of more times. It crossed continents and countries and crossed borders that were uncrossable. It came over even to the new world. It crossed time and throughout the entire planet. And then it comes to you today that you might be a part of this family. That same family that was bought by the blood of Christ, that same family that ought to display that love to each other just as Christ did, that same family that was rescued from exile and from slavery, from their own stupidity even, that same family that was called out, that was blessed to be a blessing, that same family that has the promise of Abraham, that same family is you. You are the grandsons and granddaughters. And oddly enough, you are also the mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers to a whole nother generation unless Jesus Jesus comes back, right? Like, that is the nature of this family. So, what does this have to do with our verse for today? Psalm 107, 4 through 9. Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now, obviously, there's no explicit uh, mention of family here. But don't you, like, feel it just a little bit? And, in fact, the sort of idea behind this being, like, the theme verse for dwell comes from this idea that I talked about it a little bit, uh, I think, last week. Uh, in talking about wandering, especially in the city of Denver, we kind of try and all convince ourselves that it's like a really good thing to be wandering and aimless and, you know, free-spirited, which usually means alone. Uh, like we try and like delude ourselves into saying this is a good thing. And this verse actually sort of hits on this idea that God is giving us something better than that. It's actually saving and rescuing us from our wandering, giving us a city to dwell in. The trans, uh, transition here that you see from wandering wastes to a city to dwell in is a beautiful thing. We also need to, before we really think about that, we need to think about the idea that like our understanding of city is probably different than the ancient Near Eastern uh, idea of city. Like when it says like they were wandering and then they were brought into a city to dwell in, you might be thinking like Kevin McAllister, like Home Alone 2, riding in the limo, eating a cheese pizza, like big tall buildings all around him. Uh, I don't think that's really what like the psalmist was probably mentioning here when he's talking about a city. I think it's completely different. First off, it was probably more a village than a city, right? Like what we would call a, a village probably not more than a few thousand people at the very biggest possible city that would have been existent in the ancient Near East. Secondly, it was probably a family or collection of families who comprised this city. Like, that's usually how cities would sort of pop up. And in fact, when Israel settled the promised land, they would send them out by tribes, and then those tribes would break down into even smaller family units, and they would say, like, hey, this is our spot. And then you have one house, and then, you know, that family has kids, so then they have a couple more houses on the land, that kind of thing kind of grows like that, until you have, like, a cluster and a little city there. Finally, the thing that I think we don't really recognize and why this is such a good gift uh, as the psalmist is portraying it is because the picture of a city in the ancient Near East was one of the most ultimate pictures of safety and security. 
Like, we have it a little bit backwards from the way that they thought of it now. Now, if I asked you, do you feel safer in a rural area or in a city, you'd probably say a rural area, you know? Although, uh, to be honest, I'm such a, like, city fan, I get a little freaked out when it gets too quiet outside, right? Like, uh, there was a while, especially when we were living on a very busy street in Denver, we would, like, travel somewhere else, and I was like, man, I can't sleep very well without the sirens going by. Like, to me, like, I kind of, like, enjoy the kind of chaos and stuff. But there's this temptation now to think, like, the only way that you can actually be safe is to be further away from people. And back in the ancient Near East, that was not necessarily the case. Because when you were outside of a city, there were no rules, uh, there was no order, there was no government who could look over you. Like, sure, you could, like, have something happen and bring it to the king or judge or ruler or something like that. But ultimately, it ends up your word against somebody else's. It was kind of a dog-eat-dog world out there in the wild. When you walked up on someone, it was basically your good graces or their good graces to not turn it into a showdown, kill you, and take you take whatever you have. It actually makes me think a little bit about, like, hiking. Like, if you've ever been hiking alone and you, like, see somebody and they're walking down the trail and you're walking down the trail and you're walking towards them and you're like, they could kill me and no one would even know. Has anyone ever el anyone else thought this? Am I just crazy, right? Uh, you're like, oh, my gosh, what is about to happen? You, like, subtly take that little backpack whistle and put it in your mouth, you know? <laughs> they're, like, walking up and they're like... Uh, Hey, man, how's it going? You're like, get away from me, right? And you're like, I have a, I'm calling my friend right now. I have service, I promise, right? Like, you get kind of, like, freaked out. Uh, and then they're like, okay, have a good day, and nothing really happens. Like, that's kind of what it would have been like. If you would have met someone on the road, you wouldn't know if they were about to show you kindness and hospitality and you could do the same for them, or if they were about to rob you and take everything that you had on you, leave you for dead, or maybe even kill you. But back then... The city was a different place. The city was a place where they had laws, where they had rules, where they had other people that could hear you scream. Uh, they had judges. The city was actually a refuge. And in fact, one of the coolest things about the Promised Land settlement, there's a lot that I see in the Old Testament. I know there's like some questions and problems that we have with some kind of icky stuff. But there's some really cool stuff that God was trying to set up about the Promised Land that was actually like the way that human beings were meant to live. Check this out about cities of refuge that he designated in Numbers 35. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross into the Jordan, into the land of Canaan, so that means in the Promised Land, you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you shall give shall be six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. They, they shall be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be a refuge for the people of Israel, for the stranger and for the stranger and the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person without intent may flee there. That means that if you were a stranger living in Israel and you accidentally killed somebody, right, like maybe you got an ox that got loose and it like gored somebody, uh, maybe you were like, you know, trying to lift up this stone and it like fell on somebody. I don't know. We have cars now, so that's our only like thought of like, you know, like uh, manslaughter. But back then, probably would have been a little bit harder. But let's say you accidentally kill somebody. Even if you were a stranger, a foreigner sojourning in the land of Israel, you could flee to this city. You could hide out. And what a, that policy created was a safe place for the person who accidentally killed someone, but also it removes the easy option for revenge for that person's loved ones, uh, for the victim's loved ones. Like, it sort of, like, takes that off the table. Like, do you see where this is, like, a better society? And plugged into this idea 
of cities of refuge is sort of like what the psalmist is talking about here, is that cities ultimately were a safer place than it was to wander. So here's a recap. Wandering equals dangerous. City equals refuge. This place where you can belong, no matter what you had done, where you could feel safe, where justice should be served, where people should be welcomed, this is what we are called to be as a church. We want to be that refuge for people who are wandering. We like to say here at Dwell Church that home is actually the first gift that God gives to us. We are all pilgrims, we are all sojourners, we are all refugees here on this earth. None of us belong here, we feel it in our bones. It's not something that we like talk about all the time, but we feel like this like sense of displacement, right? Like if you've ever been homesick, it kind of gives you a taste of this feeling that if you're anything like me, you just have like living rent-free in your bones for your entire life. There's this sense that you're not where you're supposed to be, that we're not actually in the home that we were made for yet. We were made for another place. We were made for a better place. When we try and make this world our home, it offers us nothing but frustration, confusion, and disappointment. Because we know that there is a better place. It's like trying to fix something that's broken with like a, a cheap and kind of already cracked part. Like, it might fit in there for a while, it might fix it for a minute, but eventually you know it's just going to fall apart again. You know it's not going to last. There's a better place where we were meant for. And I believe that this place is heaven. And I believe that that is where God will take all of the believers in Jesus one day, all of those who have been rescued by his death on the cross. And I believe that the church was meant to be a little taste, a little teaser of it. That true and complete refuge is what he offers. And the church was designed to be as close as we can actually get here on earth. That's our vision for Dwell Church, to be that family, that taste. Do you want that family? Do you want to have that family and experience that community that could actually be that refuge? Do you want to give that community to someone else who desperately needs it? Here are just a few ways that it could look, and then we'll eat some chili. First, the church can be a true safe space. The church's family can be a true safe space. Not in like a radical acceptance and tolerance as the world would have, right? You know, they talk about like having safe spaces and it's kind of just like where we all like pretend each other don't exist so we don't have to like bump into each other with our beliefs. It's not exactly what we're talking about here. But the church can actually be a place as a family where every question is welcome where everyone can be free to be vulnerable and honest and open, a community that is actually based on mutual love, a community that is committed to not judging one another, a place where unconditional love uh, should be present, that should actually be the safest of spaces. And it makes sense why we would need to do this and why it would be difficult, right? Like you gather a bunch of people together and you say, hey, uh, you guys may not have anything in common. You may be a little different from each other, but you're going to be a family now because you're all loved by Jesus. Like it makes sense that we would need to be a place where like people are going to like butt heads every once in a while. 
especially when you think about the fact that we would gather a lot of people who love God but are broken and sinful and are like cognizant of that fact that they are still on their journey of sanctification, which is being made to look more and more like Jesus, that none of us have actually arrived yet. It would make sense that sometimes those people would still do the wrong things and think the wrong things and believe the wrong things and fight about the wrong things, which is why we must have a commitment to being with each other and sticking around even if and maybe especially when we disagree with each other. This is one of the reasons why I love this church so much. Where else on this planet right now can you find such a safe space for like all different parts of the political spectrum? Where else can you find people who are Coach Prime fans and Coach Prime haters Right? Like here clashed into the same room. I mean, I don't even know how many like college football teams are represented in this room, but by all rights, if you were to turn on the internet right now, you would realize that we should hate each other. Right? Like that's kind of like the method that people choose. There's all kinds of different incomes in this room. There's all kinds of different backgrounds in this room. There's all kinds of different upbringings and cultures, and all of these things are colliding together. Where else would you also find all manner of theological and biblical interpretation differences, which I actually highlight as like a strength and a beautiful thing of dwell. If any one of us were actually sanctified and looked exactly like Jesus, then we would know exactly what the Bible says about everything, and we would have the right beliefs on everything, and we could just tell the other ones. Maybe you think that's you in this room. I hope not, right? Maybe you have humility enough to understand that you're still on this journey, which means we're going to have disagreements. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be confusing things. Someone in your small group is going to believe something completely opposite of you on some sort of biblical issue, and the only way the only hope for you and for them to actually reach some sense of truth is to have that continual iron sharpening iron rubbing shoulders with one another. If we were to say that these differences made it impossible for us to be together, then we would never be challenged, we would never grow, and our sanctification would be left incomplete, which is why we need something to hold us together even past that. We need a better commitment to each other. I'm just going to get some thoughts off my chest because I think that we all know it, but we can't admit it because this is Denver, and we have to pretend that some of these crappy friendships are actually good friendships, right? Like that guy that you see at that party because he's friends with the friend of one of your friends, and you see him once a quarter, he is not your friend, right? Like this is so distant, and we try and be like, ah, yeah, yeah, we you know, have the same conversation every six months when we see each other at these get-togethers. Like what is that? We don't want that. Let's not pretend that that's a real friendship. That guy uh, at work that you talk about the Broncos with, like, he's not your friend. That's just a podcast in live form, right? Like, it is sports talk radio, but you're just doing it back and forth to each other. That's not a real relationship. Maybe you play pickup ball with someone, but you're not exactly sure what their last name is. That's not a friend, right? <sighs> I'm sorry for the rant, and I'm sorry for destroying all the Denver relationships. But man, they're just not good enough, and we all know it. What I'm calling for is something better than that. We must do better if we're going to be the people that Jesus needs us to be. And it's good to still have those, like, sort of peripheral friends. Like, that's the only way that you make new friends. Like, it's necessary. I'm not saying that it's messed up or evil. But at least in this circle right here, this circle right here, we need to be going towards something that is a better commitment. 
What would it look like to have a group of people that you are really committed to? Can you imagine a group of people that you're committed to more than work, more than money, more than prizing your own time, more than like, you know, accomplishing some sort of like huge successful thing at, you know, climbing the ladder, whatever that looks like. Can you imagine what that would look like to be committed to a group of people above that? Here's the really radical one. Can you imagine being so committed to a group of people that you didn't even like feel like you had to offer them the like stupid Denver excuses, you know, like, well, I'm just going to flake out on this thing. I'm not really feeling it tonight. Small way that I've actually seen this happening is in groups. It's truly like we don't really think about it because we're just like, oh, yeah, we like each other. We hang out. We eat some food. We talk about the Bible. It's nothing really special. Every once in a while we go to the Rockies game, something like that. Like it's easy to just dismiss it as like, oh, this is just silly. Normal people do this. Do you realize how like transformative and radical it is to be in the city of Denver and have a group of people that I am with every Monday unless like something really dramatic is happening or I'm like out of town like like, there's nothing that just sort of, like, like I'm, I never, like, wake up on Monday and be like, oh, man, I'm really tired today. I think I'm going to, like, cancel and skip out on group. Like, having a group of people that will be together with you, like, in that space over that timeline, like, it is countercultural. It is radical. It is unheard of in a city like ours in 2023. And what ends up happening through that commitment to each other is you're able to deepen connection. You're able to actually live life together. You're able to actually care about one another in a way that you can't do with that guy that you see once every three months. It's just not humanly possible. It's not the way that we're built. Next, supernatural hospitality. I'm not talking Southern hospitality, which I know there's a lot of takes on in this room as to whether it exists or it's wholly fake and even messed up and evil. I have heard that a lot from the Yankees in this room, right? Uh, and I understand. I also will say, while I'm getting like culturally, you know, regionally inappropriate here, I will just say that uh, I, while I'm from the South, Midwestern hospitality might have a little bit of leg up. Now, they will ask you to, like, put your chili on a cinnamon roll, so there's some problems there. Uh, also, a casserole is not just, like, some veggies with cheese and crackers in it. It's much, much more, and they could learn that from the South. But as far as hospitality goes, uh, when you show up to someone from the Midwest, they welcome you into their home like you're, uh, you know, pilgrim wandering or like you're, like, uh, on the Oregon Trail. They're like, come in, stranger. It's cold outside. Can I get you something warm? You know, like it's delightful, right? So that's Josh's hot take. But we're looking for something even better than that. Not Southern hospitality, not Midwestern hospitality, supernatural hospitality. The type of hospitality that actually turns strangers into friends and friends into family. If that's what we are to be as a church, to be a family, then our job, the call that Jesus gives us to go out and to share the gospel and invite people into this family is actually a call towards hospitality, where you're actually bringing people into your home, bringing people into your life, doing life alongside them so that they might understand the good news of Jesus. You might could even call it gospitality. Mm, was that? No? Testing it out? We don't like it. It's, it's inches away from a pun. I get it. But it hits on what I'm trying to say here. That like, hey, it's nice to do something nice to, for someone. It's nice to like invite someone over to your home. 
But there is a power through the Holy Spirit that God has given to each and every one of you that can take it to be so much more and can actually be transformative in someone's life. I want you to think right now about a time when someone actually welcomed you into their home. I can remember actually when we were in college, Sarah and I uh, first started dating, and uh, there was this family. I was actually their manny, uh, which is a male nanny if you've never heard of that. Uh, I was really, really broke, and I would take any job that anyone offered me, and so for three hours after school each day, I was uh, watching these kids. And then this family just started inviting me and Sarah over into their lives. It was partially them, like, mentoring us on what it would look like to be a family and to be married one day. Uh, This was, like, long before that even happened. What it would look like to, like, care for other people while you've got kids, like, pulling your hair out and stuff like that. It was a magical and transformative thing. And for them, it was just making two extra helpings of dinner. And just having the kindness and awareness and honestly, hospitality to welcome us into their home. Next, prioritize the outsider. Prioritize the outsider. This is a mark of the true church. Not tolerating the outsider, not even accepting the outsider, but prioritizing the outsider. Prioritizing the weird, the poor, the different, the stranger. This is the way of Scripture all throughout. There are rules and admonitions about how you ought to treat the outsider. And James actually takes it a step further in James 2 to tell us that if we show favoritism to the one who looks and acts like us or the one who looks and acts like they're fancy and they have money and they're, like, powerful, if we show favoritism to that person over someone else, we're probably not the followers of Jesus that we think that we are. In a place of supernatural family, The weirdest person should get asked to lunch first. Luckily, we're having chili today, so the weirdest person in this room is not going to get 30 invites to lunch today, okay? I planned this very strategically because I didn't want anybody to get weird out. I know it would probably be me, so uh, don't ask me to lunch today. I know we're going to chili, right? But in a, like, supernatural organization like this where everything is upside down, no one should ever feel like they're second class. No one should ever feel like there's a cool kids group and they're in it or they're not in it. We can be better than that. The church must be better than that. What I love seeing when I really know that this is actually happening is the way uh, that I've seen so many of you care for people uh, who might come through our doors. Maybe they come from a different background than you. Maybe they look differently than you. Maybe they, like, You've never met this person before in your life. And when I see that sort of like warm and inviting handshake, those like good questions, that welcoming embrace, it feels like a little glimpse of this supernatural hospitality that I've been talking about. Finally, this is something that I've been chewing on a lot. This is the idea of a countercultural forgiveness. Countercultural forgiveness. What if, what would it look like to live in a community where there was an expectation that you could do wrong and have wrong done to you and then that forgiveness would be exchanged? I know, I know, it's radical. It's crazy, right? Because there's decent churches right up the street. So it's easier to like get in a weird conflict with someone or have a disagreement or whatever and just be like, deuces, this is strange. But what if you could have a community that actually looked like Jesus. 
noticing, accepting, even recognizing wrong where it has been done, and extending and receiving forgiveness. I want to be very careful with these next few statements because I don't want to, like, say the wrong thing. But here's what we should recognize. A family, a true family that never wrongs each other, never has the wrong ideas, never does the wrong thing, a family that never wrongs each other is impossible. That's not on the table, right? Not until we're actually family in heaven will that be a possibility for us. But a family that forgives one another is actually transformative and beautiful. And I would argue that a family that is regularly forgiving each other is in some ways more beautiful than a family that never does wrong. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that it's actually better, but actually just some sort of more beautiful. Like, it's not more right. Obviously, we want to do less wrong and harm to each other and to ourselves. But there is something so magical about being so committed to a relationship that you would actually forgive and be able to still be in family and relationship with someone else. To give forgiveness to someone else, especially someone that doesn't deserve it, that did you really wrong, is to feel like Jesus. You get a little glimpse of what it's like for the way that Jesus has to feel when he forgives you. You get to be like Jesus and take all of your righteous anger and self-defense and put it away and say, hey, you did wrong to me, but I forgive you. I will take on the cost. I will eat this pain. And the wrongdoer gets to understand the gospel. They feel that forgiveness from you and from God, which helps them to be, helps them better experience the gospel. Sure, it would be better if no wrong had been done. But now something beautiful has happened out of something ugly and nasty and painful. I feel like the world outside doesn't like this idea. I mean, we could talk about, like, buzzy words about, like, cancel culture and stuff like that. But even on, like, an individual level, man, if somebody wrongs you, like, you don't have to talk to more than three people before someone's like, you should never talk to that person again. Like, that's the advice we like giving to each other. That is not the way of Jesus, and it is not the way of the church. What I'm calling for is a countercultural forgiveness. I'm actually going to do something today uh, by the power vested in me by no one in particular. I don't know if I can do this, uh, but uh, I'm just going to try it. I saw the Pope do it one time, actually. So I think uh, in my understanding of the church and not really believing necessarily that the Pope is like a biblical position. We could get into that later if you want. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm going to try this. Today, I'm going to make this a Jubilee day. And what Jubilee means is uh, every seven years, uh, and then a bigger one after, I think it was 40 years in the Old Testament, you would see uh, that, like, there was a forgiveness of debts, that, like, things were just sort of wiped clean. There was this wipe slate. This is another one of those, like, Old Testament ways that God set up the world to work that we completely abandoned. And uh, now we throw it away with, like, yeah, that's Old Testament. That's weird, right? Today, I am declaring a day of Jubilee for our community. I'm inviting you to join me in free and total forgiveness of all wrongs done to one another. If you're carrying around something towards someone in this community right now, I am begging you and asking you and inviting you to join me in forgiving them. That thing that that weird guy said to you six months ago, it's forgiven. That thing that your wife did to you this morning, that's forgiven. That, te that time that you got overlooked and someone else got the praise or someone else got invited to this party, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. 
I'm even asking that that thing that I said or did to you, I am seeking your forgiveness on it. Now, I'm not saying that we just ignore it. I don't, I think especially some of these things might need to even be conversations, might need to be like brought up. Maybe Chile out there is going to be super awkward. Who knows? It's going to be like that, some sort of weird game that we're all playing. Like everybody that comes up to talk to you, you're like, oh my gosh, what's he, is he going to ask for forgiveness? This is going to be weird. Right? So uh, maybe you need to have a conversation about it, but maybe you just need to release it in your heart. Maybe you need to forgive someone right now. And from this day forward, we set a new pattern, one that is countercultural and beautiful, one that is only present in the church of Jesus, one that is based on acknowledgement of sin and recognizing of wrongdoing and seeking and offering forgiveness to one another. That is the community that I want to be a part of. That is the community that I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit we can be. Maybe... Maybe you want to be a part of this family. Maybe some of that is like appealing to you too. Maybe you would say like, man, this is the family that I want to be a part of. We have a couple of different ways that you can do that. First off, you can talk to Blair after the gathering and she can get you connected. Next up, we're actually having a membership class, a family membership class. Uh, It's going to be on October 29th. And that's a good opportunity for you just to find out what this family is. How does it operate? How does it work? What does it look like? And if you are a part of this family, then what I want to invite you to do right now is actually we're going to take communion. So, uh, Melinda, you can come on back up. We're going to celebrate the forgiveness of Jesus. And I'm going to invite you to do something a little bit strange with your communion today. Today, we actually recognize that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, which is something that we should do every communion. But I want you to spend a little extra time searching out your heart, opening up your heart to Jesus, letting him expose parts of you, where maybe you're like harboring a little bit of bitterness, where you're harboring a little bit of uh, wrongdoing, or maybe you even know that you've done someone else in this room wrong or in our broader community. And before you accept and celebrate and enjoy the forgiveness of Jesus, I invite you to extend that same forgiveness to someone else. There is no way that they did anything worse to you than you have done to Jesus, and yet he has wiped your entire slate clean. He has offered you this forgiveness. And so as we take communion today, we celebrate the blood that was shed for that wrongdoing that you did. We celebrate the bread that uh, is the, the body that was broken for you over the brokenness that you have brought into this world. And in taking that forgiveness and extending that forgiveness to someone else, we enjoy the beautiful family that Jesus has brought us into. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.